Chapter 18, The Practical Faith. Verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came, and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Second Kings, chapter 5, verse 15 through 19. Naaman, after his healing, returned in gratitude to thank Elijah and to present him with his gifts. And he meets Elijah. Two things stand out. First and foremost, Naaman is now a regenerate man. More than his body has been made whole. Joyfully, he speaks out of his new understanding. Nowhere in all the earth is there worship of the true God, but in Israel. Naaman's worship and service is henceforth to be to the true God and to him alone. Second, Naaman manifests, as we have seen, gratitude both to God and to man. He will henceforth worship God alone and offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to him and to none other. He is also grateful to Elijah and eager to bestow upon him the costly gifts of gold, silver, and raiment which he had brought. We are reminded in this incident of our Lord's healing of the ten lepers. Of these ten, only one, a Samaritan, returned to thank Jesus and give glory to God. Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19. Elijah refused the gifts. He did not thereby imply that such gifts were always wrong. In this case, Elijah rejected the gift in order to keep central the faith. A foreigner, Naaman, was now in his first contact with the man of God. Elisha isolated Naaman in terms of his new faith. Naaman would be alone in Syria, a member of God's covenant, but with no covenant fellowship. Elisha's prophetic ministry required tithes and offerings. The prominent woman of Shuman provided him with housing. The man of Baal Shalisha brought his first fruits, and so on. Second Kings four nine through ten and verse forty two. Naaman's case was different. There was no ongoing ministry to Ammon. 
There was a need for Naaman to stand alone. If this gift had been received, Naaman would have sent further gifts, and this might well compromise his place in Syria. To send gifts to a foreigner under a hostile king could become a serious matter. The central point in the story has to do with Naaman's presence in the temple of Rimon, the Thunderer, a pagan god. The king was apparently infirm. In going to the temple, he required the presence of a trustworthy man to lean on. In such a position, assassination was easy and not uncommon in antiquity. The attendant had to be, first, a totally trustworthy man. A king could have no doubts concerning him. For Naaman now to refuse would create very serious problems. There is more than ritual at stake. The question was one of trust, essential trust. Second, such a person had to be strong and able, a competent defender of the king against attacks. Naaman's presence with the king was part of a high role in Syrian affairs and inseparable from it. A man who could not be trusted next to the king could not be trusted to command Syria's army. Elijah's answer, approving of Naaman's request and position, is dealt by unfairly by many commentators. It is seen as evidence of the lower character of Old Testament morality. Such a position is blasphemous and offensive. First of all, Naaman was very sensitive to the problem, as much and more so than any man today. He feared that it might involve him in pagan worship, and he wanted no part of any other god. Second, in spite of his determination to worship God alone, Naaman did not even consider refusing to enter the temple of Rimon with the Syrian king. His concern was God's understanding and grace. This is most important. Naaman was a man of responsibilities, and it did not occur to him to abandon those responsibilities in the name of pietistic holiness. His new faith only made him more sensitive to his duties. His attention was wholly godly. He was assuring Elisha of that fact, that when he bowed to Roman, it was only because he had to help the king bow to him. Elijah's answer was, go in peace. The pietistic answer involves a misuse of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Quote, abstain from all parents of evil, end quote. The work in Greek is eidos, the form or shape of something, i.e. its reality, its actual appearance. In English, we can read this sentence in two ways. First, the false but popular pietistic reading is, avoid everything that looks like evil to someone. This will require us to avoid doing anything which someone could misconstrue. Such an interpretation radically warps Paul's meaning. Second, quote, 
appearance, unquote, can mean the actual appearing or presence of something. It then refers not to what someone might think, but to what actually is. Thus, we are required to abstain or avoid the realities of evil, but we are not to involve ourselves with such realities. In the house of Rumun, Naaman was not worshipping Rumun. He was doing his duty to the king. To sacrifice an important work because someone might misinterpret what Naaman was doing is hardly godly. This pietistic perspective has, however, led to the irrelevance of many churchmen in the world around him. If we begin to move in terms of appearances as the false imaginations of others, we move from the reality into the world of shadows and irrelevance. Finally, both Naaman and Elijah are abused because Naaman asked to take two mule loads of earth from Elijah's place of revenance. Elijah granted Naaman permission to take the earth. This is called superstition by people who are in no position to condemn either Elisha or Naaman. Their comments are presumptuous. Quite regularly, right now, American tourists, devout fundamentalists, are baptized in the River Jordan. I was once asked by a couple to baptize their grandchild with water brought from the Jordan. Was this superstitious? Emphatically not so. It represents a desire for closeness to the place and land of our Lord's earthly life. Men sometimes keep their father's hat, for example, on a closet shelf long after his death, gain a sense of closeness. Modern man is too ready to call everything he does not do superstition and everything he does reason. At best, such an attitude is foolish. At heart, it represents unwarranted pride. Such people, like Job's sorry comforters, assume that they are the people, and that wisdom was born with them, and will die with them. Job 12, verse 1 and 2. 